Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast Podcast, the comedy politics podcast that informs your opinions. Oh no, wait, sorry. It deforms your onions, which then makes it much harder to know them. Sorry, everyone. I'm Tian and Duyen, and we've all got done. Sorry, Brexit's got done. Prime Minister and why did someone throw their chips and cheese all over that bollard daddy, Boris Johnson, has proclaimed that it's the dawn of a new era. And I hope it is, as finally then the sun can come up on a political darkness that lasted three and a half years, and maybe we'll all now wake up and realise, oh fuck, what exactly did we do last night? I really hope no one filmed it on their phone. You might wonder what the point of listening to this week's show is when everything in the UK, post-Brexit, is clearly going to be incredible from now on. I mean, all bananas must have immediately got bendier over the weekend, vacuum cleaners will now have the power to suck up entire buildings, and everything will be measured by putting it in water and seeing by how much it rises, including people and babies. I mean, you only had to see the mobile disco lights shined on Number 10 Downing Street on Friday that absolutely no one was allowed to go and see live, or the party in Parliament Square that looked like if Trumpton had National Front meetings, to realise that that day, January 31st, was our Battle of Endor. Except, you know, in reverse, where it was us that was once the Empire, but now we're just the dregs of an outdated ideology, still hoping to deport all the Ewoks, cut all the trees down, and build atop their remains a chain of pubs that have no music and no one's allowed to swear in. Yes, that was the way this country marked a no-going-back for Article 50, some revellers trying to burn EU flags but failing due to the Union's fireproofing regulations. Meanwhile, the Prime Minister hid away in Number 10, only appearing to say something about unleashing the full potential of the country, as though he'll just press a mechanism and Britain will aim itself towards the US, before only managing to prematurely splurge all over Ireland with all the force of an impotent man with emphysema. Why was Boris hiding? Was it a realisation that whatever happens next is entirely on him and the Conservatives? Was it a moment of clarity that he's never thought about what to do after this point? Or was it just him being cautious with all those wannabe flag burners outside and him with very dry straw-like hair? We'll never know, but there is a chance that Johnson was just revelling in all his new Brexit merch that the government's unveiled. There's a commemorative tea towel with Got Brexit Done written on it, which likely won't clean up any mess, but it can just sort of be laid on top of it while you tell yourself you've dealt with it. And there's also a souvenir mug for when you're okay with getting your tea three years and 11 months after you wanted it. Really, the tea towel should have been printed with I wanted sunlit uplands but all I got was this lousy dish rag as nothing is actually going to change until next year and the Prime Minister's vision for the future isn't all that different from the blurry-eyed possibilities that everyone was concerned about last year or the one before that. Johnson is calling for a Canada-style free trade deal, potentially hoping, I guess, that that might bring back members of the royal family to the UK and then allow him to get away with historic examples of blackface. He insisted that there's no need for the UK to follow the EU rules on trade, which is true unless we actually want to sell anything to them or buy anything from them with any sort of ease, rather than days of days of hold-ups, checks and paperwork. But why would we want to do that when we've got fancy tea towels we can buy and wear and eat and entirely self-sustain with? 
Johnson insists that if we don't get a Canada-style deal, then Britain will walk away and have one like Australia's, which you'd assume, thanks to Eurovision, was very much inclusive, but actually is more like a no-deal, or as Lib Dem leader and Brian Pern tribute Ed Davey said, a scorched-earth policy for the UK. Which seems quite harsh terminology, and yet also apt given Australia's recent fire situation. So that's Australia, which means no deal, and the term Brexit is no longer being used as apparently that's all done, which means this bit we're in now must be a Dexit as we leave all possible deal options that would have made sense, or perhaps even a Hexit as we abandon all hope. Political journalists walked out of a supposed press briefing by Johnson about his EU plans after selected reporters were banned from entering, a tactic straight out of US President and long drop with hair Donald Trump's Book of Wankery. The Mirror, I, HuffPost, Politics, Home, Independent and more were all told that they couldn't attend as they weren't invited, meaning journalists from BBC, ITV, Sky and others all boycotted the briefing in solidarity or maybe just to see who could get out first to get the scoop from a number 10 source on how all of them might have hit Health Secretary and Elbow Patch Matt Hancock. The EU chief negotiator and daytime TV advert for life insurance, Michel Barnier, has announced that the EU's stance is quite different to Johnson's, suggesting that they're pretty happy to give the UK a sweet-as deal as long as we agree to a level playing field with fair competition. So no wonder Johnson, a man who only likes playing rugby when it's against children he can knock over, isn't too keen. It'll be hard to blame the EU if we don't get a decent deal when they've basically said you can have one if you're nice about it and Johnson has said no, give us what we want or we'll punch ourselves in the face even harder. It feels like a hostage situation where the hostages trapped themselves and held a gun to their own face and insisted that if they don't get all their demands met, they'll harm themselves. All this tricky trade chat has unsurprisingly caused the pound to plummet again because nothing says dawn of a new era quite like notions that we'll be the sort of country that people come to visit in order to buy citizens as brides in exchange for a price of a coffee in their own country. Still, it's nice that all those foreign buyers will get a complimentary gift of a commemorative tea towel with every purchase. I'm not saying that every potential Brexit positive was too good to be true, but I was hoping that one bonus of us finally leaving was that giant teratoma Nigel Farage would leave as well. This seemed possible as on Tuesday, he and his fellow Brexit Party MEPs, banded together like a reunion of the extras from Monsters Inc., decided that rather than try to create any sort of illusion that Britain is full of adults who may want to keep international friendships post-Brexit, instead made a racket at the European Parliament waving tiny union flags as though they'd been plucked freshly from undercooked cocktail sausages at a shit street party only white neighbours were invited to, and then they all walked out. The European MEPs, in contrast, sang Old Lang Syne to send off the other British politicians because nothing says nice gesture with underlying told-you-sos like saying farewell with a poem by the national poet of a country that voted Remain and is now pretty pissed off about it all. On Friday, Farage declared that the real winner of Brexit was democracy, an ironic statement for a man whose party didn't win a single seat in the December election. And he also said that the war is over. Did you know we were at war this whole time? I had no idea. Was it a civil war then? Or more uncivil? Why does it feel like the only thing that was rationed was sensibilities? Is the next 11 months of the trade negotiations a completely separate war, or just the bit where everyone gets together and then forms a European Union? Because if so, that might get really awkward. Anyway, with chat like that, I was all ready for Nigel to finish up and dissolve back into the sewers to rejoin with his true form, the Fatberg, like a proper circle of life. The only memory of his existence being the occasional echo of retching heard around Thanet in the dead of night. But no, sadly, by Sunday, Farage had already found a reason to stick around, promising that the Brexit party would still exist as an insurance policy for Brexit. How fitting. I mean, most insurance providers take absolutely no responsibility for any damage caused, so I'm sure they'll do fine. While the UK news was all focused on a few hundred nationalists in Westminster not knowing the words to God save the Queen, which does mean the tabloids should have it in for them any day now, I'm pretty sure all the hooray we don't ever have to see Nigel Farage ever again parties in the EU must have been immense. After another terror-related incident, a phrase that sounds like it really should be used for anything scary, that happened in Streatham in South London on Sunday, the government are planning to announce a new terror bill, which again sounds like every bill I've ever been sent. Home Secretary and always imagining how the person she's talking to is going to die, Pretty Patel, said there'd be new measures that will deal with the fundamentals of counter-terrorist offenders. What does that mean? People who commit offences that are countering terror? Counter-terror police that are also offenders? People who use tiddlywinks for violence? People who only attack till workers? It's really not clear. 
The new measures aren't to reopen police stations like the one in Streatham that was closed in 2013 when Boris Johnson was mayor of London and just happened to be right by where the incident happened on Sunday. No, of course it's not stuff like that. Instead, it's that they'll pretend they've invented new ways of stopping terrorists getting early release, even though those measures are already there, and it ignores the issues of how prisons are part of the problem. Mayor of London and only politician to hail from Beckinscott Model Village, Sadiq Khan, said prisons are warehouses of radicalisation. Warehouses? They make that much of it? Oh wow, maybe that can be our prime export post-Brexit. What do you think? This week, the Prime Minister is also announcing a year of climate action in the lead-up to the big UN climate change conference happening in Glasgow in November, something the government has prepared for by sacking the conference president, former energy minister and constant energy vampire Claire Perry O'Neill, which already seems like an unnecessary waste. She was told she couldn't do it anymore as she's no longer a minister, but others say it's because she kept pointing out how rubbish the government were at tackling climate change, which isn't fair as they've been very good at recycling the same old excuses time and time again. If she has been criticising their failings, then she's done something correct in her career as there's been no cabinet meeting about climate change for over six months, the UK isn't going to hit any of its planned emissions targets and the conference itself is over budget and absolutely no one has a clue how to run it. Knowing Boris Johnson, though, he'll just pretend that this is all part of the plan to save energy, but in reality, considering the global climate crisis, this will just be 2020's genuine fire festival. What will help all of these new bills, measures and conferences be realised is that Chancellor and Pokemon Pez dispenser Sajid Javid has told all cabinet ministers to make 5% of cuts by March the 2nd, despite only months ago saying that austerity was over. Maybe like Brexit or No Deal, he's just renamed it to something else. Bye-bye cuts to services, hello department dieting. Actually, Javid's calling it refocusing their efforts towards what matters most, uh, which isn't very catchy, and also, uh, it seems, lying to the public. Still, you've got to have a brand, haven't you? The Chancellor tweeted a picture on Friday of him with Foreign Secretary and personified aneurysm Dominic Raab, and Secretary of Trade and someone who I'm sure has a head that rattles when she walks, Liz Truss, all on a train. Javid accompanied the pic with the sentence, on way to cabinet meeting in North England with friends. Yes, that North England you've all heard of if you're someone that's never actually been to anywhere in the North. It's hard to tell if Javid's complete inability to talk like a real boy, or absolute lack of understanding of how Britain works, means that was he on his way to North England, or was he on his way to Scotland, which he thinks is North England, or just Milton Keynes, which he thinks is North England? Or is that just the way they have to explain where they're going to Dominic Raab, as other place names get him upset about how big everything is once he steps outside his house? In other news, Chinese telecommunications firm Huawei has been allowed to supply bits of the UK's 5G network, but not the sensitive parts. So those lucky bastards won't have to see Piers Morgan's Twitter feed ever again. Northern Rail is now, for a while, back under government control. Great for renationalisation, but under the Conservatives it likely just means there won't be any delays anymore as they'll be banned. So when your train doesn't arrive on time, it'll be your fault for turning up too early. Fifteen select committee chairs were elected in a secret ballot with former health secretary, leadership challenger, and that's what happens if you leave a cheese string to grow in your fridge, Jeremy Hunt, now head of a committee of MPs that scrutinises NHS performance and government health policy. Yes, really, that has really happened. I'm assuming most of his scrutiny will involve him saying, oh wow, that's in the health service, I honestly had no idea, after someone's told him about nurses or plasters. Or, what if the doctors did all that but longer and for free? Or, why don't you swap all the MRI scanners for some homeopathic treatment and we can just put one drop of it in the water and that'll treat everyone for years? Donald Trump has announced his Middle East peace plan that basically allows Israel to annex all of the Palestinian settlements whenever it wants. His idea of peace clearly involves annihilating one side so they can't be warring the other anymore. Boris Johnson has backed Trump's plan, saying it has the merits of a two-state solution. It's just unfortunate for the Palestinian people that those two states are Israel and Washington, D.C. But despite the backing, Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab has warned Israel of annexing the West Bank without it being agreed by all parties first. Raab reckons the peace process could unlock the potential for the entire area, which, based on how Brexit is supposed to do that for us, it could actually mean both Israel and the Palestinian people are going to have a terrible time, but some really smashing tea towels. And dissatisfaction with democracy in developed countries is at its highest in 25 years, according to a Cambridge University study. It's at 58% globally, though it was at 61% in the UK before the election. The thing is, what do people want instead? I mean, it's funny, you never hear these sorts of complaints about authoritarian regimes, do you? Salutations, Parpol Broads. What goes? Uh, so that's Brexit all done, apart from all the Brexit that isn't done, which is like uh, all of it. Did you celebrate or mourn on Friday? 
I took the bins out, which felt quite appropriate. Um, otherwise, and it may be to do with spending most of the last three years writing about it for this podcast, it just felt like, ah, oh, more of the same, but with a really depressing party going on in Parliament Square. Ah, oh, bleak, isn't it? I mean, the biggest constitutional change the UK has had in years, and yeah, it's just all a bit dull. Uh, it's funny, but I feel sort of angry, really. Not because of how people voted or if they want to celebrate, but just how often I'm having to support things I wouldn't care about otherwise because the opposition to them is so horrible that I don't really feel I have a choice. Like, I feel like under different circumstances and a different government, Brexit might not be too bad and that actually the EU can be properly shit about a number of things. But when the whole situation results in a party thrown by Nigel Farage, it's very hard not to think, no, this is all very, very wrong. I mean, I'd feel that if there was a cake uh, that I was thinking about eating and I saw Nigel Farage eating it. I just think, no, it's got to be a cake that makes you racist or something. It's probably terrible. It's the same with like the royal family recently. Um, I really can't be bothered with anything to do with the royal family. Even the crown just seems to me like they've spent a lot of money dramatising people who can afford to pay not to have any drama. But then when newspapers and idiots were racist towards Meghan Markle, you sort of feel this begrudging, oh God, now I have to defend her. And I don't. I mean, she doesn't need me to. She's got proper security stuff. But it's that feeling of, well, if I don't side with the least shitty side, even if it's a multi-million could just up and move to another country, won't speak out about his uncle's definitely dodgy connections, definitely shot people in Afghanistan side, then that must mean that I side with phone-hacking racist bigots. I wish TV would reflect these kind of uh, moral conundrums, you know. Instead of superhero films where everyone's good or bad, just have a load of people who are all really terrible and the audience has to work out which massive lack of moral compass they'd back. I'd just like to go back to being generally ambivalent about most things, most people's lives, and which celebrity might be wearing that mask and singing, please. I'd like to get rid of all that and read more books again. Thank you. And that's why I'm a terrible activist, really. Most of what I care about are things I'd like to not care about, and if they could just get sorted out, then I could sit quietly and have a biscuit. It's like all these horrific events around the world all the time. There's a part of me that wants them fixed, uh, you know, for good reasons, because they're terrible. There's a bigger part of me that wants them fixed, so that when I watch the news, it's just full of, like, fun events where an animal's messed up a shop or something. You know, how much nicer would it be to eat dinner to that? Yes, uh, sorry, what I meant to say was that this show, this podcast, is now made outside the EU, so if you are in the EU, I'm sorry if it takes longer to get to you and you have to fill in more paperwork to listen to it. British listeners, I hope this podcast doesn't increase in noise pollution due to a lack of EU-aligned regulations. Listeners everywhere else, have a biscuit. Ah, uh, what was that? Was that a rant? I don't know. I've got no idea. Um, I'll stop now, though, promise. Welcome back to the show. Thanks to whoever hit the old five-star button on Apple Podcasts this week. That's a review. I mean, not to listen to the music of five-star, though. Rain or shine, eh? That is a tune. Um, if you fancy giving the show a review too, then do. Shoot be do. Um, I had a lovely email from a listener explaining why they couldn't donate to the Patreon anymore. And look, I totally get it. Uh, if you are the same, um, please don't. It is uh, a free podcast. Also, Patreon is basically chucking money away at this chump via a platform that does nothing to make it easier for people outside the US to use. Um, but if you do want to chuck money at me, I mean, don't do that in the streets. It's hard. I mean, contact, I suppose you could sort of beat your contactless card on my face. Would that work? It might work. I could try. Um, or, you know, there's also uh, ko-fi.com forward slash parpoorbro uh, where you can buy me a coffee or make it so every month you buy me a coffee. And that's all in constantly declining uh, Great British Pounds. Um, at the moment, a coffee on there is put as £3, but I guess it'll soon be at wheelbarrows of cash for a mere handful of beans. So, you know, take the opportunity now before it's too much. Or instead of all that, you can just spread the word about the show, tell other people to get this in their ear holes or whichever preferred body part they listen to the show through. Shoeboot me do. I say all that every week, don't I? It never gets more interesting. Do I need to go through it all? Should I do it in a jingle like I used to? Should I stop patronising you thinking that you can't work out how to do it by yourself? Or keep pretending that you might do any of that when you already have or you'd prefer to punch yourself in the appendix? Let me know if you've got any ideas. Um, things this week that are happening outside of your ears. Um, I'm doing the kids politics show How Does This Politics Thing Work then at the Pegasus Theatre in Oxford this Saturday the 8th of February should you wish to bring your mini people. Um, it's suitable for ages 7 plus and it's full of jokes and yes myself and Tatum from Simple Politics have updated it to include all the current stuff which you'd be unsurprised to know didn't actually mean changing all that much. Come and see what I'm talking about. 2pm start Pegasus Theatre Oxford on Saturday. Um, also on February 13th in the London 
Didium. I'm part of a lovely bill at Congress House on Great Russell Street uh, doing a fundraiser for the TUC's Hearts Unions Week. Um, it's me, Desiree Birch, who you've probably seen on the telly lots, Lauren Patterson, who's won lots of things, Andrew O'Neill, who's also brilliant and excellent, very funny, and all hosted by very funny James Ross, who runs the best gig ever, Quantum Leopard in King's Cross. Um, I have no idea what I'm going to be talking about. I haven't done a lot of adult stand-up yet this year, uh, and all the last stand-up I did was uh, pre-Brexit, uh, pre-election, so who knows, but it'll probably have swears in it. I've popped a link to it in the pod blurb. Please come on. Oh, and uh, lastly, I always forget to plug this enough um, and should do it more. But at some point this week, I'll be sending out my own mailing list um, email for February. I put all my gigs, articles and podcast things on there every month. So sign up via my website, tinanddoyeb.co.uk for some of that. Or the link I've also popped in the pod blurb. Pod blurb, pod blurb, pod blurb. I wish so. I, it needs, we need to sort of make it so it's easier to say on a podcast rather than pod blurb. Food blob? This doesn't on this week's show, I'm speaking to Paul Di Gregorio, who knows all about how to make a successful social campaign or political movement, something I think um, is probably really useful, ATM, as the kids say, which means at the moment, not automated telemachine. I don't know why you'd add that at the end. It's probably really useful, automated telemachine, unless you're talking to cash machine, because you're really that lonely. Um, plus, a little look at what happens next in, yes, Brexit fallout, which I was going to do a new post-Brexit day jingle for, um, but I haven't, because what's more Brexit than potential that's never actually achieved? You're welcome. <laughs> I'd love to say I've been part of a successful political movement in my life, but to be honest, I often struggle to be part of a successful physical movement without hoping I get to sit or lie down again some point soon. I often assume that because of my politics, I'm doomed to forever be in support of campaigns and protests that are likely to fail because, you know, they contain some reason or moral justice need and are therefore unpopular with the general population who'd much prefer we had to hit each other over the head with sticks in order to get bread. But actually, over the last decade, there have been a number of brilliant social movements such as the school strikes against climate change kickstarting a conversation about climate emergency, the protests against fracking in the UK, Occupy, Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, the campaign to legalise abortion in Ireland, the Hong Kong protests, the Jeanne's protests in France, and of course, most importantly, that time Rage Against the Machine got to beat Joe McElderry to be Christmas number one. Do you remember how no radio stations could play the song properly because of all the swears? Oh my, they were golden times. Times. But what made them successful? Instead of just being yet another online petition that no one can be bothered to click for fear of spending the next half an hour of their lives trying to justify why you don't want to give the hosting site all of your savings. Well, at a time where if you're a Remainer or a supporter of any party who isn't the Conservatives or someone who likes breathing air or maybe you're a Brexiteer who would be feeling content but you're really missing conflict, now might be a good time to be thinking how do I start something that might actually make a change, or at least really annoy Piers Morgan? Well, you're in luck, as I spoke to Paul Di Gregorio, a digital engagement and mobile strategist. What does that mean? Well, it means he's damn good at helping campaigns build people power and knows what's needed to make them effective. Paul founded Rally, a collective that helps mobilise support for campaigns, and he also posts a brilliant monthly email called Do Something Anything, with loads of useful links to global movements, protests that work, and generally lots of very life-affirming stuff that I can't recommend enough before you give up and go start building your flaming road warrior. We spoke on Brexit Day, which felt very apt as, fan or not, the Leave campaign was a very successful one. So I asked Paul what social campaigns need to learn from that one, what some things we can be doing, and what to start with when we're all feeling knackered and fed up. Here he is. Hi, Paul. Um, it is, I'm talking to you on Brexit Day, which feels um, very poignant uh, that I'm speaking to someone that is very good at uh, movements and campaigns and getting people, um, you know, active uh, politically. Um, so considering the day and the time, well, yeah, how, what makes a successful or, or a powerful movement? Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, what a question. Um, whenever I answer this, I think I always get into trouble with academics. So please excuse me academics who are listening <laughs> about about what I'm about to say I spent quite a lot of my working life studying like really effective movements of the past and recent history and I it kind of for me boils into like four or five really key things that the most successful movements have and I think the first thing is like yeah a, a, it sounds so obvious but a really really clear and well-articulated vision to believe in. Um, a vision, you know, that really spells out the change that that movement or that group of people want to bring about. So it, the issue can be complex, but 
the vision can't. It really does need to be so accessible to the to the public at large. And I think if a vision on its own isn't really good enough either, you know, the really, really successful movements have, um, they've also got a believable plan to deliver that vision. So I think it's really hard to attract people to your cause or to the thing that you are looking to change in the world, unless the people that you're looking to attract believe that you have an actual plan that will make that happen. Because without that, it's just, it starts just to become a little bit academic and maybe, dare I say, a little bit over intellectualized and, and without any kind of real grounding in what the public want or what you want or, or the way in which you can go about um, delivering on it. And I think you need to be able to like show values, like, and values again that are really easily subscribed to. So not over intellectualized policy wonkery, but really super simple, simple human values that people can see that they share with you, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's really interesting. You're, you know, I can really see this in campaigns that have been successful in the past sort of decade. We've had, like, you know, Obama's Yes We Can is a very clear message and then he sort of backed it up with what his values and how he wanted to change America. But then it's also interesting that, for example, Brexit was sort of, uh, get or get Brexit done, whichever, you know, iteration of it you want to see, there wasn't a plan for it. So is that, is can a successful, powerful movement just be the slogan sometimes or is that not enough i think a movement needs to be more than a slogan i think like the mass mobilization that brexit campaigns achieved through kind of taking back control and that sort of thing i think that's like stretches into like advertising and that type of thing but i think for i think a movement needs to to be something that's more than a than a kind of tagline and I think they did a really good job. I mean, I hate to say it, obviously, on today of all days, but I, I mean, you can tell my political affiliation with that one. But it's, it's, I, I just think, I, they, yeah, they did a great job. I think with Obama and more recently with Bernie and others, there's there's like a real setting out of the vision of America that they wanted to see that people could really buy into. I like the tagline for Bernie right now is not me, us. So it's just kind of this really inclusive um, kind of feel to that campaign, which and I think gets played through with his kind of vision for like healthcare for all and all of those different types of things really come through very quickly after that initial that initial message. I think another thing with um, movements is no one joins a movement just to be a kind of a part a, a kind of pedestrian in it. I think if people kind of subscribe to your values, they believe in your plan, you really build a powerful movement if you give people like really, really, really useful, very practical things to do, which are like totally rooted in the mission. So, you know, if if if, if I or you get involved in a particular cause, it's no, I mean, there's no point, it's just like changing our Facebook profile or or kind of taking the very, very simple action. But if I join up with something or, you know, when we're looking to encourage people to join up, we want to make sure that we've got things for them to do that will actually drive that real change. And I think that's a place where quite a lot of people get it wrong. Like amazing human rights organizations or environmental groups or whatever can attract this kind of huge support. And then unfortunately they can, they're like, just give people really, transactional things to do basically like give us money give us money give us money and i think to really really be successful you need to do more than just treat the people that join your movement as a bit of a cash cow yeah but that can be quite distancing can't it i mean because you know you could just sort of hand over a bit of cash online and then not really engage with it in any other way once you've done your bit um and i don't think that feels i mean personally when i've done it i don't really feel like i'm connected to that campaign or that i've particularly done anything good for the world you know yeah, I think I think giving can be a really giving can be a radical act. I think in America post Trump, the American Civil Liberties Union made a huge amount of money when they um, successfully um, got a temporary injunction on the Muslim ban right at the beginning of Trump's presidency. I think they raised in that one weekend like twenty four million dollars, when in the previous year they'd only raised four million. So there's kind of like donating can be a radical act and a kind of a way of showing solidarity. But what was interesting with that story is after they have this huge injection of cash, then those people kind of saw the ACLU as the face of the resistance, maybe. 
and they wanted to do more. They were, they were like lobbying the ACLU to be given more things to do than just donate. So I find I find that as a really interesting sort of study from the past. Yeah, and is that putting more responsibility on them then than they perhaps initially wanted? Is that the problem there? Yeah, it was really. Str- I mean, I I know some of the people who were involved in the American Civil Liberties Union, this amazing fundraising story and mobilization story post-Trump. And it was such a shock to them. They were an organization that, you know, American liberals loved because they stood up for the Constitution. But in a post-Trump world, suddenly they were, they just had this absolute explosion in kind of public support for what they did, which actually made them diversify a little bit. So yeah, they had a whole bunch of lawyers on staff that would protect civil liberties. But they then kind of out of all the money they got, they created this really quite radical new thing called people power. So they created the mechanism by which they could put people to work and kind of a whole bunch of digital organizing and email to action and like the creation of local groups came about as a as a, as a consequence, that's a fascinating case study. Yeah, yeah, that's really fascinating, really fascinating. And it's uh, you sort of mentioned digital organising as, as part of that. And I I wondered, I mean, one of the fascinating things, a lot of the big campaigns we sort of mentioned were parts of a political campaign. So there's a lot of money behind them and a lot of kind of primetime coverage of those campaigns, you know, like Brexit or US presidency or any of the um, parties, you know, for, for the election. Um, but then campaigns sort of like Black Lives Matter or like Extinction Rebellion, is it online that's kind of got those recognised? Obviously, those had a real moment. Both of those have had a real moment, a real reason to kind of come alive. But you know, what's what's drawn people to them? How have they become popular? And that how have those become the movements that people have gone to? Is that all through online a- activism and online reach? I think, I think digital is just a, a phenomenal tool for us as kind of activists and campaigners to use. I mean, I, it, it, I think the first political campaign I was involved in was probably the general election in 1997. And, you know, we didn't have email and all of those things so we had to use quite old technologies to to mobilize and move people to do things but digital just gives us such unbelievable reach and extraordinary scale so we can put our messages out and if they really resonate then we can we attract like-minded people really 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 cost effectively so you know black lives matter was is, is, is an incredible example of how a basically a hashtag around the kind of violence, the police violence in a whole bunch of different incidents in the States, just started clustering people together in these groups online. And then what happens, which is I think always has to be the goal for anyone who's involved in campaigning or movement building, is to kind of translate that action online into real world action. And you know, at the, at the top of the a terrible phrase, but the engagement pyramid has got to be kind of real world action where people come together, whether they are going to visit their MP or they're doing a real world action like phoning an MP or writing to an MP or congregating in a march or doing that type of stuff has to be our has to be our aim. Sure. Is it is it easy for these? I mean, like the ones I just mentioned were quite. Um, I really hate the word organic, but they were, weren't they? They sort of, you know, because they were very of the moment. Um, but you know, there's so much online now, and there's so many causes, and there's so many issues. How do you get your thing noticed, or how do you get people to know that you're there, or does that just have to happen, you know, naturally? I think, I think that those kind of movements that grow out of real world events have to be very good at um, to really take full advantage have to be really good at kind of hacking the news a little bit and and riding a wave alongside what's happening in in the news agenda so to give you an example of something there that i saw recently which i just loved was hope not hate the kind of uk anti-racist anti-fascist organization they um they there was that moment when trump was just just an unspeakable man when it came to um <laughs> that's very careful language you used to <laughs> yeah, i have to check myself there sorry um it's, you're allowed to swear on this podcast it's fine <laughs> i shouldn't have said that um so he, he, he was like he was unspeakably racist about the four um congresswomen so aoc and others and hope not hate they responded immediately and they put out an email to their base which was we want to send this open letter of solidarity to these four women and sent it to me, I'm on their list, took the action, really, you know, felt like it was something I should do. And then part of what they asked me to do was share it. 
And I was speaking to the campaigns director of Hope Not Hate, a very smart man called Matthew McGregor. And he told me that over 5,000 new email subscribers were kind of signed up as a consequence of putting that one email out to their base. So those kind of organizations without a huge budget, they just need to be really smart about how they use the media at the beginning of their kind of when they when they're really getting going. And then after that, unfortunately, it's to, to really cut through with um, in 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 a kind of digital space. Um, there's a whole kind of Facebook and paid advertising and all those sorts of things that I know we have to do to kind of drive to drive our message to the people we want to reach. You know, the the, the sort of most uh, successful campaigns in my in my head in the UK recently have sadly been, or maybe not sadly, if that's what people want. But it's uh, been Brexit and being the Conservatives' election campaign of get Brexit done. Um, what are social movements doing wrong, or should they be learning from how those campaigns worked, or should there be a completely different? approach uh for social movements yeah it's, it's the question i'm wrangling with every single every single day at the moment i think we just got over my personal period of mourning post post-election result i um i don't think there's a single answer and that's a bit of a cop-out but i think it's obvious that both tories and leave were a lot more ruthless in the pursuit of their vision and their goal than the opposition i think breaks my heart to say it but they were really super organized and they felt like they had i think one thing just message discipline if i'm thinking about the general election and i think in both cases like brexit and tory victory in december it's like boiling their calls to action or their narrative as we were talking about a minute ago down to very simple and very memorable lines was a really 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 effective way of doing things so take back control and get brexit done you know, gets across a message in a very, very efficient way. And that kind of constant repeating of those lines, I think, becomes very tiresome for people who are really super engaged in politics and are watching every single news programme and reading every um, every kind of article. But for the great British public who aren't maybe consuming in the same way that those that are really into it do, it, these messages just stick and rise above the noise. So I think there's a... There's something that to be said there for us. We've got to really learn from that. But I also think it's probably not. We should probably. Should, I don't even know if we should be fighting on the same ground. I am. I'm really interested right now in the kind of power of positive framing, which is giving people to something to vote for rather than against and or painting a picture of where we want to be and looking at how we get there rather than talking about the, the real difficulties and the hard struggle that we have to get there. And I think um, AAC does that brilliantly. I think she um, she does, she tells really positive stories which are framed in a really positive way. She's kind of painting a picture of what, um, what a post-Trump America could be like, and um, she was on a an, another podcast actually. Sorry for bringing it up. Called <laughs> How Dare um, <laughs> Pod Save America. And oh, I think yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, brilliant podcast. Yeah, it's a brilliant podcast. And there's a really long interview with her recently where she was talking about how it wasn't good enough just to be a politician or a great legislator or a kind of great policymaker, but you had to be a really great storyteller and. I don't really usually buy into this whole shtick around storytelling, but in, in her case, she was talking about, I think I wrote it down before the, let me find my, yeah. Um, she said, you need to talk, tell stories with the five senses and not five facts. And I'm just reading what I highlighted earlier on. Use facts as supporting evidence, but you need to communicate and tell the stories in terms of, you know, the smells that other people are smelling, the stress, how your heart is beating you need to show that we're all having the same human experience and i quite like that kind of you know telling the story in a different way approach which may, may maybe work i don't know if it would work somewhere here in the uk but seems to be working well for her in the us um, and but it's interesting as well i mean i think she's particularly charismatic um uh, casey cortez she's she's got a real charm to her whenever you watch her uh, and a real passion as well and uh, but it's also interesting just when you mentioned earlier like the bernie slogan of not me us that's a three-word slogan it really cuts through and it's essentially the same as you know uh for the many not the few but it's in a lot fewer words and <laughs> and sort of cuts through a lot quicker um and there was a lot of complaints about the Labour campaign as well, that there were just too many 
too many promises for the future. It got overcrowded and cluttered and actually having a clear, this is what our message is, this is what the future is, while being positive about it. That's There's a lot of power to that, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. And I and I, I think we could spend hours critiquing the, the Labour election campaign, but I, on a kind of personal and maybe even professional note, I, it, it was too confused. It was too... There was too much being um, talked about, whereas there was a constant competition against this narrative of get Brexit done. And I just think that the Tory campaign really, really captured the mood of the country at that point and um, managed to um, manage to get that get that message message over. Oh, so, <laughs> yeah, no, I know. <laughs> well, well, I mean, on, on that note, I mean, as you said, it was uh, you've had your period of mourning, but we're, it's, it, the last three years four years of politics have been so exhausting and then i think the election as well was exhausting um when people are left with that kind of exhaustion and and perhaps apathy or perhaps wanting to kind of ignore politics for a while how do you get them motivated into being politically active again how do you get them to want to be a a part of something and, and do something again oh my it's a it's been so so tiring right i um i i i think people just need to have a moment just to rest and um everyone needs to chill get some energy back and um i think also maybe stop being hard on themselves i've just speak to so many kind of friends and professional kind of acquaintances around the work that i'm doing and there's a lot of people who feel really miserable about the the outcomes and the way in which they maybe could have done better and all of that sort of stuff i'm just like we are so in this for the long term and we're we're not doing it by ourselves, you know. They, you know, we need to form really good coalitions. We need to form. Um, we need to. We, we need to have that moment of rest. And I think when we're ready, it's like we just need to remind ourselves that we have power. That people genuinely have power. And I think, you know, the the <laughs> the the establishment tries to convince us all the time that we don't have power. And I think one of the things I spend most of my time doing is showing people that they, they've got it and trying to signpost them towards the most effective ways of using their power because when people come together, absolutely incredible things can happen. And I just, you know, we just all need to rest, man. It's just been tiring. But we'll, every, everyone will come back and everyone will come back really, really strong. I'm convinced of it. It's like not everyone can give up work and take an unpaid role on a campaign, but we can all do something. We can all, we can all start to do something. We'll be back to pull. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All in a mo, but yes, it's inevitable. It's... Brexit fallout! Brexit fallout! Brexit fallout! But it's done, isn't it? Isn't it all done? You know, the constitutional change formerly known as Brexit, the unplanned trade chaos that shall not be named. We done heard it on the news, didn't we? That's all done now. We're all in charge of our own laws, just like we already were. But now it's more so because of passport colours or something. 
without wanting to repeat myself, despite this podcast being a weekly session of just saying every time, no, you can't just get it done in the same way you can't just get a baby done. Though if Johnson does think that's how you get a baby done, then you can just ignore it and assume it's fine. That would explain a lot about why he has no idea about how many kids he has. Sorry to repeat, without wanting to repeat myself, we still have 11 months of everything being the same, except we can't make any changes to EU rules that will still affect us, so if they suddenly made a rule that all British produce has to say the English are massive shitlords on it, then, you know, we'd have to. I mean, we probably wouldn't have to, but they really should try just for laughs. So, 11 months and then crash bang fully out at 11pm December the 31st. But what type of crash bang? And yep, you've guessed it, still the same as we were worried about last year, but with different names and different people telling you there's nothing to worry about, even though there is. Over the course of Brexit, former Prime Minister and part of the Stickman family, Theresa May, said we'd all have the exact same benefits as we do now. Then she changed that to being frictionless trade, which just sounded like it needed a lot of lube while we got shafted. Then all the red lines meant there'd been inevitable friction. And then Johnson changed it and said there'd be no EU alignment. Now he's asking for a Canada deal, which is back to a bit of friction, or if not, an Australia deal, which is basically a no deal with WTO arrangements. Look, when it gets to the eventual end of all this, if we're still alive then in 2156 and the robot overlords have let us have human history lessons, all of Brexit will be summed up with they could have had a deal that was as similar to how it was but cost more, but they kept threatening to have no deal which was stupid, particularly for Northern Ireland. That's it. That's the whole thing. It's been the same story again and again for the past three years. It's a bit like J.J. Abrams directed it and can't stop himself repeating the same story with varying lens flare because he has absolutely nothing else. Still, no one actually knows anything about what Brexit's going to be. Sajid Javid has promised UK businesses have certainty, but won't tell them any of the regulations they might want to be certain about. Exploded durian fruit for a face, Michael Gove, has said that to minimise trading issues, some regulations would differ, but he doesn't know which ones. Johnson insists we won't be a rule taker, that sovereignty is more important than free trade, but that Britain must become the superman of free trade, and also that free trade isn't needed. So, we become the Superman, but we don't do anything to save free trade because we don't actually care about it. Are we the bad Superman from Superman 3? Is that us? It's all nonsense, but it's nonsense that either means the government are going to put up a fight for no real reason, meaning harsher tariffs and a lack of access, which in turn means a stroppy right then we'll go Australian, which in this instance is not no worries, but no deal, lots of worries. What's the Canada deal, though? Good question. Well, Canada's EU agreement means tariff-free trade for 98% of goods, which do have to meet EU standards. I've got no idea what the other 2% of their goods is, but it must be something there's absolutely no call for in the EU at all. I bet it's that Clamato juice. No one wants that, do they? It sounds like an STI. Workers' rights mustn't be lowered on Canadian stuff uh, below international labour organisation levels, and the EU can impose tariffs on goods that breach state aid rules, which I bet Clamato Juice does. I mean, you really should get that seen to by a doctor. It's disgusting. But the issue with that for the UK is that the Conservatives want zero tariffs on 100% of goods and a deal on financial services, because we're the toddler of the globe who wants everything while reciprocating absolutely nothing and refusing to go to bed on time. But to get all of those fancy things, to get all of the stuff on our Christmas wish list, the EU are asking for a level playing field where the UK aligns with EU state rules, EU workers' rights and has the European Court of Justice for all its disputes. This is because they're concerned that the UK could use competitive deregulation to take money away from the single market by, say, having two lines of trade. You know, one fancy one for the EU, following all their rules and regulations, and one cheaper, shittier, worse workers' rights ones for everywhere else. Jaguar Rover, for example, for the EU, with his aircon, digital radio, sat-nav, six-gears, hybrid doodars, sleek looks, and all that jazz. Jaguar Rover for outside the EU, made by a child out of wine boxes. Probably. There are ways to do all of this, uh, but it depends on if the government wants to, what image it still feels like it has to present of Brexit, or maybe they'll just stop saying the word and by June everyone will be angry about all the other shitty things like lack of buses, school funding, waiting seven years for an NHS appointment, and the fact that we still don't know who all those masked singers are. I mean, seriously, come on. One of them's got to be Denise Van Out, and they have to. And anyway, Johnson will then maybe just agree to a deal much the same as before and hope no one notices. That wouldn't be the worst outcome, but it would mean that we spent over three years essentially doing what could have been done right at the beginning while spending billions on pointless no-deal prep with Nigel Farage doing far more TV appearances than is acceptable, i.e. more than one. Considering it's the Conservatives that are meant to be the ones you trust with the economy, they're really, really not very economical, are they? 
Oh, and the National Audit Office has concluded that it's not clear that the government's £46 million ad campaign, Get Ready for Brexit, actually resulted in the public being significantly better prepared for Brexit at all. No, of course it didn't. You can't get ready if you don't know what you're getting ready for. I mean, the government didn't even pay attention to that advert. It'd have been more effective to write Get Ready for Brexit on one post-it note and pop it on Boris Johnson's fridge. A government spokesperson has said that it reached 99.8% of the UK population, which, if you're taking the whole UK population, about 4% of that are babies, and that's really not helpful to anyone. How's a baby going to get ready for Brexit? They already cry lots and demand impossible things. Do they even need to do anything else? The spokesperson also said not undertaking the campaign would have risked significant and unnecessary disruption to businesses and to people's lives. No, you confuse the campaign with Brexit, you idiot. Still, that's £46 million on an ad campaign that did nothing. Yet again, there is nothing about Brexit that isn't also a perfect metaphor for Brexit. And now, back to Paul. You were talking about what you, what you do, and you sort of help people to understand they do have power. Um, tell me about Rally because Rally is an absolutely amazing um, organization. Are you a, a campaign? You're a sort of uh, movement. Are you, are you call yourself, don't you, rather than a campaign? Yeah, I'm trying to. So I've worked in kind of campaigning and fundraising organizations, mainly on the kind of partner supplier side of that business. Ever since I've had a proper job, so I think I mentioned a minute ago my first job was um at an agency on the 1997 general election i ran that agency response for the two elections after that for the labor party where my kind of role was even though it was a fundraising agency it was all about the kind of fusing together of fundraising campaigning mobilization volunteer recruitment all of those things which wasn't really the norm for most of my clients and i've worked in other places i've worked at charities and other agencies and i just got to the point Quite recently, I think I've been spending a lot of time in America, um, very lucky to be in America just after Trump and just before, and just got inspired by a whole bunch of American organizations who were just showing that with a values-based approach and really shit-hot digital kind of um, practice, that we could kind of mobilize hundreds of thousands of people to do stuff. So I quit my job to set up an organization which can help UK, European and all sorts of other organisations across the world do that. So I work with lots of organisations. I bring teams together to to, to make that happen. So I'll help organisations figure out their framing and their strategy. And then I've got an amazing network of people around Rally or kind of I try to think of Rally as a bit of a hub where all of these amazing people can come together and help organisations do that. And it's just been the most exciting year of my life to leaving my job and doing this. It's been phenomenal. Yeah, I bet it has. I bet it has. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's just it sounds like it's such a useful thing that you're doing because campaigning in itself is, is can be exhausting and so much hard work. And to have someone else that can come and say, well, this is how I show you to do it most effectively feels like it's been missing from so many campaigns. Absolutely. There's a lot of people that do what I do. So I wouldn't want to set myself up as being the only organization that does this, but what I think rally is very good at is connecting different causes and different people and different people in the kind of progressive space to bring them together and help power more effective campaigns so i'm sure everyone who's who runs something says it i try to make sure that rally's ego is suppressed and that we don't need to be front and center on everything if there's a better person to do something and the cause needs it i would much rather connect that organization those two organizations together and make something happen probably the most rapid route to bankruptcy but so far it's been okay yes yeah 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 it's um well no but i think that's you know something with campaigning is it, it money can't be important can it no nope. absolutely not if it was i'd be selling doritos rather than than doing this sort of stuff. <laughs> well, you know, you can always do that on the side. Hey, people, yeah. <laughs> especially at like uh, demonstrations and things, people need Doritos for the energy. So it's a, it's a good side nice. hustle. Yeah. <laughs> um, and well, and as you were saying, there was uh, beforehand that there are lots of things that people can do. And and one of the things that I, well, I, I really love your newsletter. I get your newsletter when you send it out every month uh, called Do Something Anything, which already is just such a great title for a newsletter. Um, but that you've always got such fascinating links in there um, to brilliant campaigns and brilliant movements that are going on. It's always really, really inspiring. Um, and especially I found the last couple after the election just really useful. Um, 
But what what are your tips right now for, you know, what can people be doing if people are listening and they, you know, they want to do something, but they don't really know what it is or how to get involved? What's what's the best place to start? And I know that's a very broad question because there are billions of things, I'm sure. <laughs> I think I've, I think that um, I think a bit rich, like everyone's got the things that mean the most to them and kind of being really clear about what you care the most about because we've all got a limited time we can't fight on all fronts and then a tiny bit of research to find out the organizations that are doing good work in the area that you care most about so whether it's poverty or human rights or the kind of um the the refugee and immigrant um situation and i I honestly i just start signing up to a couple of email lists for those organizations because if they're any good and they're doing good work pretty soon their emails will be signposting you towards actions that you can take and things that you can do to really help them and you amplify the causes that that really really mean them the most to you and if all you get is a whole bunch of emails asking you for money unsubscribe because that ain't how we're going to change the world it helps we need to we need to fund it but you know some organizations just get it wrong and think that which is there to fund it but you know i i think there's so many amazing organizations doing incredible work like you know the, if, if from an environmental perspective i'm i, I sign up to um I'm, I'm on greenpeace greenpeace's email list and it just fills my my inbox full of kind of really useful information and kind of signpost me towards stuff to do so i mean it's a bit of a they have a simple response, but I just think you just need to start. If, you, if you're not active, then that's a really good place to start. I've heard a number of people have said to me that, you know, just being active is really good for your mental health. and just makes you feel better because you're actually taking part in something rather than kind of sitting back and being upset with the world. You're taking an active part in trying to change it. Um, do you think, you know, is, do you think there's a benefit to uh, not just obviously to the communities and to the causes that people are doing? Do you think there's a benefit to, to, to people just by being active? Yeah, I, I, I totally, totally do. And I think the action can be, you know, as small or as big as you want it to be. I think there's a really kind of nourishing um, element to this in terms of the kind of feeling of, of of being part of a potential kind of solution to a problem. And, it, you know, I I regularly think about this and talk to people about the types of actions that, that you can take. I just think, you know, it's on, on so many levels, you like, you, you, you shop shopping locally you know that's a that's probably a radical act speaking to your neighbor more often is probably quite a radical act or when somebody really really pisses you off your mp or a brand you know telling them and and being positive about it or or get, you know telling people you know telling brands and and politicians when they've done things which you think are wrong i just talking to them or writing to your newspaper or all sorts of things you can do everything you know even Joining political parties, I mean, what a radical act, but you can you can do so, so, so much. And it just, I honestly think it will make, it makes people feel better about themselves. Yeah, no, because I, I, I felt like in the, in the, in the last election, I owned, I've got a, a nearly two-year-old and uh, gigging at work and everything, and you just feel like, oh, how, I haven't got time to also help change the country. But then, as you said, you can just, like, emailing an MP, you go online and find it and send it, and half the time the campaigns have kind of composed an email for you or whatever. And you, it's really so easy. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, I think tenacity is a good thing. You know, we all, we all need a rest at times, and we, should, and we really do need to recognise that this shit is really tiring so when you're tired it's like everyone needs to give themselves a break and just stop but i um i'm i'm engaged in a very long campaign a personal campaign with an organization that um provides the the um the payment processing for um tommy robinson for his donation stuff and whenever i've got a spare moment i will write the chief executive another email or i'll take out another um, service ticket on their um, on their website, or I will leave a little comment on their Facebook page, or I will encourage other people to do the same, and or I will leave them bad reviews and encourage other people to <laughs> leave them bad reviews um, online. And it's amazing how, if you're just a little bit tenacious, how you'll get under the skin of a big organisation and they have to start taking you seriously eventually. But you don't have to do it every day; just drip 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 
That is brilliant. That's such brilliant advice. Um, I really good luck with that campaign. That's fantastic. Um, and I think I'm going to give up, but I'm not giving up. <laughs> I hope I hope you don't. It's excellent. Um, and uh, the last question. Thanks so much for talking to me today. So I think so. As I said, so necessary, especially sort of in post Brexit week. It feels very um, motivating just speaking to you. So um, the last question, which is what I ask everyone on this podcast, but I'm very excited to ask you because you said already that you've got a long list uh, for this. Um, apart from yourself and your newsletter and rally, um, who else would you advise that listeners follow or read up on, um, either sort of to incentivize them into being active or just for thoughtful writing and, and ideas that you like? Who who do you go to? I there is a group that I um, I met this group called the Mobilization Lab a, a, a long time ago, where they invited me to their. Um, they were running a conference in the woods near Arnhem in Holland. It was brilliant, brilliant, brilliant conference. It was like a the mobilization lab were part of Greenpeace a long time ago. And at this kind of five-day conference in the woods in Arnhem, I just met people who I'm still in contact with now, so activists from all over the world who just were teaching me in these five days the most incredible, incredible stuff in terms of strategy, tactics, examples, and all of that stuff. They've got um, they've got a kind of weekly newsletter, an email newsletter. They've got an amazing website, which is jam-packed full of kind of um, – the kind of examples of how you can run your own campaigns and how you set them up and examples of brilliant campaigns around the world. I just love their um, email newsletter. It fills me full of so much enthusiasm. So I'd totally recommend that people sign up to the Mobilization Labs um, email. And then, oh my goodness, there's a... um, So there was a book that was written... um, out of Bernie 2016 by uh, a friend of mine, chap called Zach Exley and Becky Bond, two people who ran the kind of distributed digital organising model. The book's called um, Rules for Revolutionaries, and it's just a brilliant inside story of that campaign and how they, with no money, kind of mobilised just hundreds of thousands of Americans to get behind the Bernie campaign. It's a really good playbook on how to do that. And I find it really useful because I can scale it down and use it in um, campaigns of all sizes. Um, I, In terms of books, I mean, I, there's like, I've mentioned Rules for Revolutionaries. There's another book called Rules for Radicals. It's all about the rules, which is written by this absolutely amazing uh, man, um, whose name has just completely popped out of my mouth. Saul Alinsky. Saul Alinsky is his name. And um, written in the 60s, it's just like a really good primer for how to make change happen. Um, and an organisation in the States called Brand New Congress, who are the people that um, kind of selected AAC and gave her all the backing to run for Congress. Um, just an amazing organisation to get some in kind of inspiration from and everyone has to watch knock down the house that movie about um aac and the other the other women's kind of uh, uh, campaigns to win um uh, to win power in, uh, in congress because that's just a phenomenal phenomenal book and i'm gonna stop there because i could go on for hours it was great chatting with Paul. Do go and follow him at Paul D. Gregorio on Twitter and D. Gregorio Paul on Instagram. Uh, you can sign up to his newsletter, do something, anything at tinyletter.com forward slash Paul D. Gregorio. And I highly recommend that you do as well. I absolutely love that email. Um, and rally are we are rally.co.uk or at life at rally on Twitter. Um, of course, all the links will be in this week's pod blurb, pood blurb, uh, because, uh, you know, I love you really. You've been sending in loads of brilliant suggestions for guests, um, and I think the next several weeks are all sorted, which never usually happens. Very exciting. I'm actually organised. It's weird. So thank you for sending those in, but send me more. Who else? What else? Why else? How else? Where else? What chats should I be having? What aural informings are you going to need to survive this post-Brexit future? Drop me a line at Paul Polbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk, or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or why not write your recommendations on a letter that's also full of racial slurs and spelling mistakes that you then post around your building and when everyone online says how awful it is but also shares it and it ends up on the news who also share it and then everyone who agrees with it feels galvanised, I'll eventually see it and think, oh, I won't listen to your requests as you seem awful. As always, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? 
And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thank you for listening, even though, you know, you should be shunning podcasts to be running around hearing purely British sovereign sounds like people taking their bins out or saying they wished they were on holiday or sighing or a fox making horrible noises at night or saying something that's basically a hate crime. But thank you for choosing these sounds instead. And if you enjoyed them, don't forget to do all the nice stuff that tells other people what you think. Uh, you might think there's enough opinions out there, but trust me, yours about this podcast are the most important. Comment on every article with it. Why not? Why not do that? Uh, please tweet Facebook, Insta, TikTok, LinkedIn if you're a prick or whatever else to recommend it. Do a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever and buy me a coffee for the efforts via the Kofi or Patreon. Yeah? Yeah. Thanking you all times to Acast for show housings, my brother the last skeptic for all the tunes, to Cat Day for the linear liner notes, and to Mushy Bees for all the art stuff who I always forget to thank because I am at heart an awful man. This will be back next week when the government's year of climate action is announced to be a six billion pound campaign to have someone cycling to each town and city in the UK shouting "Got climate done" and absolutely nothing else because that way they save trees, which means four hundred thousand extra trees that are actually already there. Bye. This week's show is brought to you by the Conservative Party's Got Shit Done pants. For you to wear everywhere, meaning you won't actually ever need the toilet again, as you can just convince people you've already been, despite the bloating, pained look in your eyes, and what you know will be hours of issues further down the line. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.